How can universities allow more students from more backgrounds to gain access to what constitutes the surest way of attaining economic success? How do different ethnic groups fare in college? And what does it mean that some groups attain what's called hypermobility, while others seem to lag behind? What are the real verifiable factors determining college success? And what are the social psychological perceptions that color the admissions debate? I spoke with Professor Van Tran, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. He's a sociologist whose research and writings broadly focus on the incorporation of Asian and Latino immigrants and their children into the American wider social fabric, as well as its implication for American culture, politics, and society. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. Welcome, Professor Tran. I'm really excited you came down from Colombia to speak with me today. First of all, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. So Van Tran is a professor of sociology at Columbia, and you research the way in which immigrant groups become part of the great fabric tapestry of American culture. And you look specifically, I think, at Latino and Asian immigrants and their children, basically, the next generation, mm -hmm. and how that shapes two things, how they actually fare in our country and how they are perceived, right? Two separate things. How did you get interested in this topic to examine this huge demographic shift that's happening in our country now? Well, I think at a personal level, I'm a refugee from Vietnam, so I have always been curious about the experiences of refugees and immigrants in the U.S., um, people like me and how they are adapting and incorporating into our society. And more importantly, what does it mean for the American society going forward as the children of immigrants, a population that we call the second generation, has been coming of age? And in every single way, in our culture, in our society, in our politics, they are increasingly a strong presence and their influence on our mainstream society is felt everywhere um, and is also vivid um, on our own campuses as well. When did you come to this country? 1998 in okay. November. Okay, so it's been uh, 21 years almost, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so and um, let me stay with that for a moment. Do you feel that you're an American now? I do, because in so many ways I have lived in the U.S. more than I have lived anywhere else beyond the U.S. Um, so in many, many ways, uh, in my daily life in New York City, I almost feel like I'm a New Yorker and sidestepping the question of what I feel or how I feel as an American, because that is a label that is loaded with all types of assumptions about origin or race or culture or language, whereas a New Yorker has a much more flexible meaning um, to it. There's a line in um, this novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, by Moshin Hamid, who says, the person, he's Pakistani, he arrives and he says, I became a New Yorker the moment I landed and arrived in New York City. I never became an American. That's exactly how I feel sometimes, although I am a bit more optimistic. I hope that one day I will feel truly American, but it has to be the America that I believe in. So, so you're studying actually exactly this process of how people who are either children of immigrants or immigrants become, let's say, fully American and what that America would then look like for them to say with the same naturalness that a lot of people who've been saying for a long time, for hundreds of years, I am American. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at that process of how that happens. Yes, that's core and central to much of my writing and research to date, um, which is about the experiences of the children of immigrants um, and their integration into American society. This is a robust area of research that basically started two decades ago when the first children of the post-1965 immigrants who arrived in the 1960s and 70s came of age, 
and they raised the question, are they being included in our society? How are they being included? And more fundamentally, how are they faring socioeconomically? Are they achieving educationally? Are they transitioning well into the labor market? Are they active participants in our society and our democracy? And obviously, post-1965 immigrant groups range from everyone across the spectrum of Asian, Latin American, and African. So and say something why 1965 as a date. What happens? 1965 was the opening of, 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 of liberalization of immigration policy into the U.S. So until then, we have what kind of policies government? What happened is between 1924 and 1965, there was very little immigration into the U.S. because of the immigration law of 1924, which basically cut off mm-hmm. the majority migration flow into the country. That was important because it gave time for the children and grandchildren of the European immigrants who arrived 100 years ago to Ellis Island, um, the Jews, the Italians, the Irish, and the German, time to assimilate and integrate and became Americans. So four decades after that, in 1965, um, we passed the 1965 Immigration Act, which basically opened the door for immigration from all over the world. Now, at the time, the debate on on the floors of Congress was that this act is not a revolutionary act. It is only meant to open up a door just a little bit, and they were expecting, you know, a few hundred people from Mexico would come, a few hundred people from Vietnam and China, but little did we know that since then, on average, one million immigrants have arrived every year into the U.S. legally through our front door. Mm -hmm. And half a century has passed, and what we're seeing now is a tremendous amount of evidence about the successful integration of the children of immigrants or the second generation. Now, if you think about immigrants themselves, the first generation, people like me, oftentimes we try our best to adapt and become more and more acculturated and integrated, but we shall never be fully American because we grew up under a different environment and culture and country and society. But for the second generation, something magical happens because they're born and raised here. I want to stay with one moment with this first first category here. Of course. So you're saying people like you, people like me, who also grew up in other countries, maybe as children, came over here. But then there's other category of native-born American people, right? So you said from 1924 till 65, this is the children of the Irish, the Germans, the Eastern European Jewish, the Italians, who are born in this country. So you're making this distinction between being born here versus people who came as children or adults, right? Absolutely, because na- nativity is, uh, is, is consequential in predicting all types of outcomes, um, including, obviously, educational attainment. Is that right? It is for, um, or it was 100 years ago, for the children and grandchildren of the Jews and the Italians um, who arrive, and it is still true today for the Asians, the Latinos, and the Africans that we see in New York City. So nativity, is, a, is that a factor that sociologists use to say it's children born here versus children who came at age 8 or 10 uh, or 14? Yes, in fact, we do that a lot. And in fact, when we invoke the term second generation, we are specifically referring to the U.S.-born children of immigrants. Right. Now, in between, there's some gradation. So um, the first generation actually refers to people who arrive in the U.S. as adult, like me. I arrived when I was 19. Between the first and the second generation, there's a range. There's what we call the 1.25 generation, the 1.5 generation, and the 1.75 generation. And that really signifies how close you are to the first or to the second. So if you arrive below the age of six, then you're closer to the second, and therefore you're 1.75. And in so many ways, your experience is probably closest to the second generation. If you arrive in your teenage years after 12, then you're probably closer to the first generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there is some fluidity between these two designated categories of first and yeah. second generation. And the, the group, the, the large cohort you're looking at after 1965 is now, as you said, it hadn't been predicted, but it shifts. So it's immigrants from Asia, Latin America, and Africa. 
and large numbers. You're saying there will be no large numbers before. And can you say something about roughly how many people in this country were from those backgrounds in the early 60s and how many are today? So the people, listeners can see the shift in how they participate in American um, society. Um, that's a great question. So what you think see is um, increasingly the migrants are coming from what we call non-white um, countries and regions of the world. Um, let's start with Asians, for example. In the 1960s, Asian Americans accounted for 1% of the total U.S. population. Today, they are 6.4%, which is still tiny, and it is still the smallest racial group aside from um, Native Americans um, in, in the U.S., but a quite consequential group for many reasons that we could talk about later. In terms of Hispanics, in 2010, one in eight Americans self-identify as Hispanic, and the number is projected to grow into one in four in 2025. And this is in contrast to about 6% of the total U.S. population in the 1960s. Okay. So this the black category is much more complicated because you have both African Americans who were born here um, and who have been here for many generations and black immigrants who are arriving. So that category is a bit more amorphous. So you're looking at what these second generation Americans, so people born to immigrant parents, um, how they fare in society. And some of the categories you look at is one of the um, spaces you look at is education, right, as, a, as attainment kind of because you can measure that, I guess. It's an easy one to say. And we'll get to where it happens, where, how that works mm -hmm. out in the workplace. Mm -hmm. But first, you look at education, right? How the they do. The most important indicator is basically what we call social economic attainment, broadly speaking, and that includes education, occupation, income, um, the basic variables that we have, readily available in the census in high quality data. The reason for that is actually, as a technical aside, it's incredibly difficult to uniquely identify the so-called second generation because the U.S. decennial census stopped asking the parental birthplace question in the 1970 census. Oh. 1970 was important because I was at the tail end of four decades of no immigration. So our legislators thought that immigration was a thing of the past. In fact, the late historian Oscar Henlon basically, you know, wrote a book called The Uprooted in the 1950s. And for him... Immigration was now a thing that historians could begin studying because it was so deep in the past and in history. So in 1970, just to come back to where we started, we stopped asking the parental birthplace question. Now, without that question, you cannot identify people who are the second generation because they blend in with second, third, fourth, fifteenth generation. So in order for you to identify the second generation, you need to know two things. One, where the respondent was born in the U.S., and where their parents were born outside of the U.S. Um, so for a long, long time, we don't have any good data on the second generation mm. to, be, to even begin thinking about are they integrated. And therefore, um, we had to rely on a series of what we call regional studies and surveys, small in scope, certainly not nationally representative, mm -hmm. to sort of give us a sense and a flavor of how they fare and there has been only three such studies over the last 25 years. One in New York, one in LA, LA, and then a third one comparing San Diego and Miami. And this is relying on data sets where you can sort of see. And, then, and so what do people find there? And in some ways, the entire area you're working on is so politically and symbolically charged. Mm -hmm. When I'm listening to you, I'm thinking the huge debates about immigration today in the Trump administration, the debates about who gets into what school, about school achievement, everything from tiger moms to affirmative action, from the lawsuits right now surrounding colleges to the debate about the wall on the Mexican-U.S. border. All of this is such a charged topic. So you were very careful to say we don't. We are careful to select reliable data and to be very cautious about extrapolating too much right away. I think that's one of the major responsibilities of a social scientist. Um, that is to say, we ought to be rigorous in the work that we do, and we ought to go one extra step in translating our research to the public. Because what we're seeing right now at this particular moment in history is a lot of rhetorics about immigration, but a lack 
and a void of facts, facts that we have known for a long, long time, facts that I'm reciting to you have been available to the social scientific community for at least 15, 20 years. And yet we have not done a very good job at translating this information to the public, that's one. And even when we are somewhat successful at translating it to the public, I think we're at a moment in our country where we are deeply polarized, and therefore it's extremely hard to change people's opinions, even in the face of factual information. But everything is really wrapped up in the question of immigration and how the American society is being transformed as a result of immigration since 1965. And one major authoritative source I would point you to would be the report um, by the National Academy of Sciences called The Integration of Immigrants into American Society. It is freely available um, online in a PDF form, 450 pages long, and it was published in 2015, summarizing the most authoritative research on the experiences of immigrants and their children. And the report was chaired and uh, uh, published by Professor Mary Waters at Harvard. So you know I'm going to ask you that you're going to have to summarize the 450-page report. Or generally say, you don't have to summarize, (laughs) but you have to, I want to understand what does this report try to try to study? So the integration of immigrants into American society, meaning there's American society, then all these people arrive, and then you have different measures or factors how well they integrate. And I assume the measures are, do they get jobs? Do they get housing? Do they have families? Do they get degrees, education, et cetera? Do they contribute to society productively, right? That must be the overarching idea not how American are they? Do they watch the same TV shows? Do they eat the same food? Those cultural markers. Right? So what's the study? The study is trying to, you said it's a reliable, authoritative study. What is it trying to um, respond to or answer? It's trying to summarize what we know so that we have one place where everyone can come to in accessible language to understand, to study, and to appreciate the ways in which immigrants and their children have changed, and also how the American society has also changed Mm -hmm. as a result, Mm. because this is a two-way process. It's a two-way street. Um, So let me start with the um, term integration or incorporation of immigrants. Uh, We are looking at two different processes. One is how immigrants themselves change over time. And secondly, how do the outcomes that we can measure, like education and income and health and mortality and civic and political participation, vary from one generation Mm -hmm. to the next? Is the second generation doing better, more upwardly mobile, more civically and politically engaged compared to their parents? Because we know from the experiences of the, the, of the Europeans who arrived 100 years ago that assimilation into American society is a multi-generational process. In mm-hmm. fact, if you look at the historical <coughs> record on how the Europeans became Americans, it took them three generations to achieve parity with the white mainstream. And that parity of achievement is what we mean by incorporation, integration, and assimilation. In other words, we are thinking about the decline of cultural and social differences across groups. And when groups become very similar in all objective measures, then we say that groups have achieved parity. And that parity is basically core and central to the notion of, in, of, of, of equality and of whether or not the group has become fully absorbed into the American society. So you just said, so the European immigrants, it took them up to three generations to reach parity with white Americans who had been born in this country. We're leaving out for the moment um, African-Americans who are not part of this because they didn't achieve parity with white Americans for many, many generations, right? Even after the emancipa- emancipation of um, enslaved people. So there's a different story here. We'll get to that in a moment. But so three generations is quite a long time, right? That's how many years is that? Around six, how do you measure a generation? 15, 20 years? 25 years 20, for a generation. So that's seven, just average. So um, 75 years about. So, so the 2015 study 
defines what from the from eighteen six from nineteen sixty five from this generation that you're interested in this mm-hmm. because you're looking at really two generations two linked generations right correct and I think in so many ways the study of immigration but also the way we speak about the pace of integration is deeply comparative we're always benchmarking how the non-white immigrants and the children of today are doing, comparatively speaking to the European immigrants who arrived 125 years ago. Are they doing better? Are they doing worse? Are they assimilating faster or slower or at the same pace? So let me start with 100 years ago and make three broad comments, and then I will come to the post-1965 group and summarize the findings. So now we're talking about the people who lived in this area, Five Points, the Lower East Side, 120 years ago Absolutely. in the tenements. So this is Jacob Rees, how the other half lives. This is all these groups, massive migration from Italy, Southern Europe, Ireland, Germany, and the sort of Eastern European nations, mostly the Jewish Absolutely. population. Absolutely, and it's not just New York, but it's also Boston and Chicago um, and other parts of the country at the time that received some number of immigrants. And just mark one thing for me. Um, what about Asians at this point? There sort were very little... few Asians because after the 1900, um, Asians, both Chinese and Japanese, were barred from entry. Yeah. So they excluded. So they were the... excluded yeah. from okay. entry, and most of the immigrants who arrived 100 years ago were mostly European. Mm-hmm. So what do we know? We knew that three important elements happened um, in the 1940s and 50s that ultimately led to the full integration of the grandchildren of the European immigrants into American society. First, clear evidence of upward mobility across generations in terms of education and income. And that social mobility led to their residential mobility into more integrated neighborhoods with other Americans who might be from non-immigrant backgrounds. And that's a second element. And the third and final element was intermarriage across this different European hmm. immigrant groups and the native-born white population at the time. And, you know, when you became a quarter French and a quarter German and a quarter British and a quarter Italian, you just say, well, I'm just a white ethnic American. And that is really the moment hmm. where the creation of the white ethnic category began. Hmm. So social mobility or socioeconomic attainment has been core and central to the story of the immigrants 100 years ago and how they became Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 1965 and the current moment. What we know from multiple sources and data uh, sets and research reports is that by and large, the children of immigrants, the second generation, are faring significantly better than their parents, including groups that we have had a lot of concerns about, such as Mexicans. Mexican is the largest ethnic immigrant group in the country. It's also a group that is the most likely to be undocumented. In fact, 60% of the estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country are from Mexico. Mm. So legal status is a very important indicator of, you know, lack of opportunities. And therefore, we would expect that that for Mexicans, the process might be slower. In fact, it is. But even for them, when you compare the children and the parents, there's clear upward mobility. So that is a positive story. Second, some of the groups have achieved either parity with white or exceed parity with white, in only two generations. And this is remarkable Mm. because this is telling us that the pace of assimilation, despite the fact that these groups are non-white as we classify them upon arrival, Mm -hmm. is actually a bit faster than it used to be. Mm. And by the third generation, we shall have the more conclusive evidence as to how they fare. However, the third generation of the post-1965 way is still too young. They're basically babies and adolescents, and therefore we don't know where they would end up. And we have to wait another 15 years for that data. So when the second generation performs so well, you can ask, are they especially, and then fill in the blank, driven, talented, given more opportunities? Or has 
the society changed, that they allow people or they facilitate this kind of incorporation, as you call it, integration, more easily. Because 1950 society is different from 2000 society, so maybe it's easier to make it. Or is it that these people have characteristics? So you study both of those parts. You said you study how the host society changes and how the immigrants are adapting to it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the answer is both, actually. Um, on the one hand, uh, many, many migrants who arrive today um, are very, very motivated. And we often use the term selectivity to denote the fact that they are more selected in both measurable characteristics like education and income compared to the non-migrants that they left behind, but also in the unmeasurable characteristics such as motivation, dedication, drive, uh, grit. That so you're saying the huddled masses today are the ones who decide to make the trek to America? They, so do they want to attain something? So they have a drive in them? A lot of them came <laughs> because they wanted a better future for themselves and for their children. Mm -hmm. In the case of refugees, like people like my family who came from Vietnam, we simply don't have any option of returning. So this is it. And right. once you think that this is all you have, then you give it your best shot at making it work. And that really is an important element that I think underlies the success of the first generation as well as the drive and the motivation of the second generation because they remembered and are constantly told that their success is seen as redemption for the sacrifice that their parents made. Hmm. Many of them traveled thousands of miles across borders to be here. And that is something that is both beautiful because American society is enriched by the people that we're receiving who are so extraordinarily special. And it's also endearing because we all, despite all of the challenges that we have experienced over the last few decades, continue to be the beacon of hope and light for the rest of the world, especially for those who are fleeing conditions mm -hmm. of extreme mm -hmm. poverty, mm -hmm. war, political persecution, and we shall never or we should never take that for granted. Mm -hmm. In your work, you look at the differences among certain um, second-generation groups. So a couple studies of yours I've read where you compare different groups, say Nigerians, Armenians, Vietnamese, or Chinese immigrants to parody groups in the U.S. or their benchmark groups in the U.S., and you found different things. And what you said, there's some groups that outperform, which probably hadn't been expected, or I don't know if sociologists are mm -hmm. surprised at this. So can you say a little bit about those differences? Because I think... Let's just stay with that because then I want to ask you how that shapes our understanding, our social or psychological perception of these groups. So the first um, key finding that we saw was that every immigrant group, regardless of their ethno-racial background and country of origin, fared better than their proximal host, which is the racial group in the host society to which they are assigned upon arrival. So Nigerians would be designated as black. Mexicans would be designated as Latinos. French would be designated as white. And then Asians don't really have a proximal host group. But we know that compared to the native group of the same race, every single second-generation group has fared better. So that's worth staying for a moment. So actually you're saying they've done better, so the takeaway would be, so immigration is good for the country. Absolutely, there's if no People question. do better if you use the, the kind of generic metrics you use, which is income, educational attainment, mobility, civic engagement. So why this uproar about immigration? Why should we stop it, close the doors? It's too much. We've been overrun with people who make us better. I think it has to do with, obviously, the rising anger and resentment from a portion of our society who are native to this land who have felt that they have been left behind by our government as immigrants are being given or at least are able to take advantage of the opportunities that are here. In fact, there's a paradox if you look across the country 
to come back the, to the rhetoric of anti-immigration, the counties with the highest anti-immigrant sentiments in the country are also the counties with the lowest proportion of immigrants. Now, isn't that paradoxical? Because what that is telling us is that in places where there's a lot of immigrants, where there supposedly should be a lot of competition for jobs and other resources, you would expect the native-born group, both whites and blacks, to be more resentful of the immigrants. And the pattern we found was the exact opposite. It is in places where you have no immigration that the level of resentment is highest or the level of anti-immigration uh, sentiment is highest. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, speaks to two important issues. One is the importance of contact with immigrants because once you have daily contact that are meaningful with a group that is being seen and perceived and stereotyped as other, your perception shall change and hopefully improve. But secondly, those counties with the fewest proportion of immigrants that we saw across the country are also the very counties where there are very few job opportunities, economic resources. And that is also the reason why immigrants are not drawn to those places in the first place. And those are also the most deprived parts of our country. And I do think that attention must be paid to those native-born populations who desperately mm -hmm. need our help mm -hmm. at this moment, despite the res resentment that they felt. So that's one large part of the debate about immigration. A couple other things that I've just alluded to and that you know about better than I do are these hugely complicated public debates about education, about access, about fairness, about equity in school systems. And then I think the the kind of spark that sort of lights all this into a sort of scandal usually is um, around affirmative action and admission. But it's more than that. And I've talked to a couple of people that that one of your measures is educational attainment. So one of the measures is the incredibly outstanding, remarkable, overfunded elite institutions. So they become the, the moment when people look at this. And affirmative action has been rendered illegal in certain states, California. It's been limited in Texas, et cetera. So the publics are no longer really part of this conversation. But so when you look at the educational attainment and people are doing so well, better than their parity group, does this fuel this debate or does this stand behind it? Can you say a little bit about how you think about these debates around the affirmative action issues, which have now centered on supposedly Asian Americans bringing a lawsuit against Harvard because they're not being treated fairly in the admissions process, which is going to be decided by a federal judge, I presume, pretty soon? So um, there's a lot to say about this, um, but let me uh, start with the lawsuit filed by students for fair admissions versus Harvard, which is now at the center of the attention that we see. And there is very clear, right, that this is a moment where Asian American communities are being manipulated by the conservative right to stage a lawsuit that would upend a fortunation policy at elite institutions, as well as more fundamentally destroy diversity in higher education, period. So a lot is at stake here. Say, say two things about that, how you think the aim of this lawsuit is to end affirmative action and to, what you just said, destroy diversity. And how, how do you think, um, if this lawsuit went forward, if Harvard is found responsible for doing these things, how would this play out, do you think, then? Well, I think it's clear that the lawsuit is headed for the Supreme Court. And in addition to Harvard, UNC uh, is now also part of a new lawsuit, mm -hmm. which was just announced this week. Um, and both lawsuits were designed to aim at, you know, taking down what we call holistic admission, the use of race in admission processes, which have been the standard practice for a long, long time, since the 1960s, right, when President Johnson signed an executive order that put a protection policy into law. Mm -hmm. And when you think and reflect upon that origin of that policy, it is meant specifically to increase the ethno-racial diversity on college campuses, but especially elite campuses, which were notorious for being underrepresented when it comes to these minority groups. And the people behind this lawsuit, Edward Blum being the key uh, player, 
was also the person who brought the lawsuit um, against um, the University of, Te University of Texas, you know, uh, Fisher versus Texas a few years ago. And what he has been doing is he has three different websites, and you might have seen these websites that said, you know, are you or do you feel that you have been unfairly denied admission to Harvard, UNC, and Wisconsin? And if so, please let us know because we are trying to find the people who could stand behind his lawsuit. So that, I thought, was very, very obvious what he was trying to do because it's, he doesn't care about Asian Americans as a community. Whether or not Asian Americans are actually being discriminated against is a whole different empirical question which I'm happy to engage in. Mm -hmm. But the lawsuit itself, you know, is very clear to me, just a, uh, a cover for, you know, one more attempt in a series of many failed attempts at cut out, and you know, Let me say policy. the law school is um, tricky and cleverly designed because it has really tapped into the, the reasonable worry of a lot of people that the process isn't fair. I think the, these current scandals around college admissions are just another indication that people may suspect it isn't entirely fair. The system isn't isn't totally fair. It's rigged in some ways. This week, it's celebrities who pay for their kids to get in. A couple of months ago, it's supposedly you know it's easier for some groups than other groups. We have a discussion brewing about legacy admissions and athletes, which is not the aim of this lawsuit. Mr. Bloom is not suing the kids who got in. Although now it's in the, but what I say why it's a reasonable, uh, why it's tricky, and why it's well designed because it taps into the concern of especially Asian-American parents, the people you study, whose children are born in this country and who are now worried to say, is it going to be a detriment if I acknowledge that my son or daughter is Asian-American? Do they have a harder time getting into college? Because that's what that law school lawsuit has been known for now. Can you say something about this in two parts? Can you say something about the generation you studied, the first generation and the second generation? Because they are, they want their kids to go to good schools, mm -hmm. right? And then secondly, is this, a re is, this a, is this a concern that we need to unpack in a different way then? So um, here I would begin by sharing some findings from a current study that I am doing with a colleague of mine, Professor Jennifer Lee at Columbia. And what happened is as the lawsuit went to trial in October of last year, we both were thinking out loud, what do we know about how the average Asian Americans think about a affirmative action policy? <laughs> what we had in the media were accounts from both sides, the pro-supporters um, of the policy and then the kind of anti-policy kind of, you know, policy conservatives, Chinese and Asians, portrayals that are rather anecdotal mm -hmm. to the eyes of a social scientist. So we both decided it's time for us to look into mm -hmm. the empirical evidence. And the first thing that we learned is that there's no data whatsoever mm. on how Asian Americans think about this topic. For example, the Gallup poll, which is you know, one very reliable source of um, survey mm -hmm. doesn't include Asian when it comes to the question on the policy. <laughs> so fortunately, we have recent data from the 2016 National Asian American Survey, which is the first national survey that included 10 ethnic groups, which allow us to disaggregate the Asian American community into their ethnic origin, because Asian Americans, as you probably know, are not a monolith. They right. are diverse in terms of class and origin and even political ideology, yes. which is important to this question. Mm -hmm. And it was also fielded in 10 languages so that we actually have sizable numbers of the first generation mm. who don't speak English and therefore are rarely being surveyed. And we don't know much about how they think about these topics at all or if they even know what this policy is. Mm -hmm. Because the idea that there's such a policy is quite foreign to some of them, especially if they come from a country where meritocracy is the only currency of admission to higher education. Meaning a simple numbers, one test admits everybody, no holistic review. Correct. Right. Or just sort of grades or exams right. or something right. along the lines of academic ability, right. but not holistic mm. consideration, right? So um, we looked into the data um, and there are two fascinating uh, sets of findings. Um, the first is obviously we wanted to know where Asians stand vis-a-vis -vis blacks, whites, and Latinos. Are they more or less likely than whites, blacks, and, and Latinos to be supportive or to be in a position to this policy? And what we learned is what we expected, 
which is that blacks are twice as likely than white Asians and Latinos to be supportive of the policy. So Asians ally closer to white on this question. Mm. And then we did an, a manipulation. Instead of asking— but Stay with us for a moment. So in, from this survey, Asians, Asian Americans are closer to whites. They're not less supportive. They're not significantly less so in some no. ways. Because a lawsuit has staged it has said this is the group that suffers the most and is the most outraged by this policy. So you found that actually they're kind of in, I guess, the— numerical mainstream of their size. That's exactly right, because you could approach the situation of Asian Americans from a surplus or a deficit perspective, mm -hmm. right? Because a surplus perspective would be saying, actually, 6.4 of the total U.S. population and over 20% of Asian Americans undergraduates on our elite campuses. That is an overrepresentation, and therefore, what else can Asian Americans complain about? That's the surplus way of putting it. The deficit way of putting it is exactly what you have been hinting at, which is that I'm an Asian-American parent, and I'm concerned that my kids are actually being discriminated against and therefore are losing out in this game of admission. And if so, I should be more anti-affirmative action policy. And both hypotheses could be true, and both can be operating at the same time, depending on where you rank and where you're from. Right. And the second part of your hypothesis is that this would mean that you think my kid has not as good a chance of getting into one of these top schools, and the reason is this other policy. But the reason may be something totally different. That's Correct. why I said, for example, there could be other reasons why, because some people will be admitted, some people will not be admitted, but is race the factor that works against you or in favor in other cases? But here's the thing when it comes to public opinion, and that is perception is often as powerful as it reality. And therefore, even if you do not know whether or not you truly are being discriminated against because or on the basis of race or other factors, you often can <coughs> attribute it to race. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the danger in much of this, this, of this discussion because we truly do not know. As, you know, Harvard president, or former Harvard president, Drew Faust put it, we do not have enough slot in every incoming class of Harvard freshmen to admit every single valedictorian who apply. We just don't. And therefore, mm -hmm. in addition to academics, we must have some other elements, right, for us to make these decisions because admission, once again, is about assessing not just past achievement but also future potential. Mm -hmm. That, to me, has always been key to every admission process, be it undergrad or grad school, or even when you're hiring someone as a faculty member. It's not just what people have done, but what they might do mm -hmm. in the future. So to come back to Asian Americans just for a second, what we found was that you know the differences among the different Asian ethnic groups are in fact larger than hmm. the differences between Asians and non-Asians. And this comes back to the core of the debate about the diversity among the Asian American community. So for example, when you disaggregate by ethnic origin, 30% of the Chinese report supporting the policy compared to 60% among the Koreans. Now, this is remarkable, right? Because these two are both highly educated groups and come from coming from similar regions of the continent of, of Asia, East Asia. And that is a, a big gap. And more importantly, Chinese is also the least likely of all Asian ethnic groups that we had in the sample, including Japanese and Vietnamese and Filipinos and Bangladeshis, to be supportive of the policy. So there is something unique about the Chinese situation. Um, and in fact, they are also the people who are being highlighted in all of these media reports of the lawsuit, both at Harvard, but also here in New York City with the Stuyvesant debate. Which are the um, top-ranked public schools that have a very difficult entrance exam, and there's a lot of debate. I'm just, for listeners who are not in New York City, a lot of arguments about who gets in, and it's a very, very numerically high, rep high um, part uh, representation of Asian-American students in those schools, mm -hmm. very low for, for African-American, and they're just testing schools who used to be the engines into the Ivy League and into the kind of elite schools. So why do Asians, why do Chinese um, Americans have this different opinion? Or why do they, why do you think so? 
our speculation, because we don't have this in the data, right. and therefore I emphasize speculation, um, is that we think there are three reasons for this. One, the Chinese-American community is the largest of all of the Asian groups. Um, they comprise 20% of all Asian-Americans mm. in the U.S., so one in five people you encounter. And therefore, I think they are most likely to be affected by this policy because more of their children applying and possibly encountering the situation. Second, the Chinese community has also been known to be very bimodal in their income and education and human capital profile. They're highly educated PhDs and JDs and MD parents, and then there were the working class Chinese parents who work in the garment industry, in the restaurant industry in Chinatown. And therefore, what you see within this community is that these two groups ought to differ in right. their opinion about the policy because the working class Chinese truly believe that it would benefit their children, who bring to mm -hmm. the elite institutions a certain type of diversity, class diversity for that matter, or experiences. Whereas the high-end uh, income, high SES Chinese are truly competing for the same slot with white. And that is where the anti affirmative action policy is strongest. Mm -hmm. And the third reason we think we see this is because of the ability of the Chinese to be mobilizing within the community. So there's a lot of communications and there are anecdotal evidence about how different groups on WeChat are organizing and spreading all types of information about this lawsuit, as well as the Stuyvesant debate. Lots of misinformation as well within this forum that is unregulated. But here is the thing. It's the high SES group that is dominating and crafting this narrative about the harms that could be done to the Chinese community. And mm. therefore, once again, you just see the power of social class in shaping this narrative. And that's why I think the support is lowest among the Chinese. So to rephrase this, so the let's say the um, more professional part of the Chinese-American community are driving this narrative because they feel they have the most to lose because they're competing directly where they have to lose. So just to make that point again, which is so complicated, why do they see that African-Americans admitted to these schools are the problem? Because numerically, it doesn't even quite play out. It's not that there are so many... Afri African-Americans admit it because it's simply not true because it's remained rather steady, mm -hmm. sort of stable over the last 20 years. So they haven't increased the number of African-Americans at these schools. But white Americans are the, really the big group. So in some ways, why is the target this policy rather than legacy admissions or financial aid policies or uh, sports or the entire other scandal happening in California with the people who can give their kids different kinds of opportunities, tr testing, preparation, all these other things. So first of all, you're exactly right that whites are the group that are overrepresented. Meaning compared to their... Compared their to their fair share because of legacy admissions as well as um, athletic recruitment, which we know has been at the center of this entire um, scandal about elite admission and bribery. I do have to admit that I um, went to an elite institution and I was on the rowing team. So I actually know quite well that this does play a factor because they want to have enough members of their sports teams, these schools. And so actually for <laughs> sports, because I think it builds a lot of, you know, uh, uh, relationships that are lifelong for the students that I have taught. And I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with sports. I think where we have a challenge is when we elevate that as the number one concern or one primary concern over everything else. And that is where the calculation of admission becomes slightly distorted. But let me just come back mm -hmm. to, um, to, to where we were earlier, which is that I don't think that Asian Americans are thinking, oh, blacks are the ones that we are basically targeting, because let's just be clear, a firm action policy benefit more than blacks, including Latinos mm -hmm. and white women. In fact, white women is the group that has benefited the most from the policy, mm -hmm. such that we no longer think of them as the original intended beneficiary of this policy. So that's 
the first point I want to make. Second, it is because this lawsuit gave them a rallying point to basically vent their frustration about the fact that it might be an unfair process. And third, they are being mobilized by the right, and they're being basically taken advantage of, knowingly or unknowingly, by the conservatives who would like to use this to win a suit that would basically bring down affirmative action policy. Speaking from a more personal sort of level, having taught at and worked at three different elite institutions over the last 15 years now, I would say that affirmative action policy is central to the mission of our universities as a place where open debate about ideas and diversity of viewpoint are allowed to engage with each other. Because you could not have that diversity of viewpoints and experiences without the diversity of our student body. So I am, you know, fundamentally mm -hmm. um, for this policy. Despite all of the complexities that we can discuss, I have seen the value of having people who are from a different perspective or background in the same room. For example, last fall I taught a seminar on neighborhood and urban poverty, which is at the graduate level. And it just so happened that two of the students who were enrolled were formerly incarcerated young black men. They were treated as if they were just every other student, but they were also very open and vocal about their experiences. And because the class is about neighborhoods and urban poverty, you could imagine this is exactly their life experiences. And in fact, the stories they tell are even more compelling than the best ethnographic account that we read in the books. And that is just an example of how diversity of perspective must be in the classroom, but especially in the classroom of the most elite spaces in this country where those views are rarely heard, if it is heard at all. I want to ask you one other thing about, um, uh, you wrote an, uh, an editorial with Jennifer Lee um, about what you call the bamboo ceiling about professional attainment for Asian Americans. And there you argued that affirmative action actually would be a benefit to the overall sort of Asian American community because professionally they actually don't do as well as on this educational marker. So can you say a little bit about that, what you found in that research? That was the biggest surprise, actually, in a paper that just published this week from Ethnic and Racial Studies. Um, and there we just wanted to know, among the second-generation Asian, how they fare educationally and how that educational credential can translate mm -hmm. into the labor market. The question was so simple, really. And what we were able to do was to pull 10 years of data from the current population survey, which gave us a sample of 2,000 second-generation Asian American, which is the first time ever that we have a nationally representative survey of second-generation Asian with that sample size. Educationally, we found what many other people have also found, which is that they are significantly more likely to be educated compared mm -hmm. to white. In fact, Indians are eight times more likely than white to graduate from college. Um, Chinese were six times more likely than white to do so. So then we were expecting that this would translate, but then when we looked at the coefficients on the labor market, what we saw was that except for the Chinese, who are 1.5 times more likely than white, to be in a professional position. The other four Asian groups that we looked at, Indians, Filipinos, Koreans, and Vietnamese, are no more or less likely than white to be in a professional occupation. Although they have higher educational attainment. Exactly. So they basically had higher degrees or studied more, better completion rates, but then they didn't become managers or professor in professional ranks. Hmm. So this is why we concluded and asserted that Asian Americans have to be over-credentialed in order to achieve parity with whites. They're not disadvantaged compared to whites. Let me be clear about that. But they have to be over-credentialed in order to achieve parity. Tell me why that's not a disadvantage. the labor market. Break this down again when you said they're not disadvantaged. They're not <laughs> disadvantaged because I did not find, or we did not find, that 
second-generation Asian American professionals are less likely to be in those positions than white. They are as likely. But if you think about the overeducation, right. then right. yes, the implication should be that they are disadvantaged if, because it doesn't translate. So if education were the one marker that would let you advance professionally, but apparently there are other factors in place. Interesting. There are, and we pointed to, although we don't have data to show this, three important reasons. One is certain lingering negative stereotypes against Asian Americans, um, the fact that they are hardworking but not social and not outgoing. They might be diligent, but you're not very creative. They are unidimensional and not multidimensional. They might be, you know, very, very uh, uh, loyal but not actually assertive, and they lack leadership potential. Therefore, they're often being appointed associate chair instead of chair, deputy director instead of director, vice president instead of president. You see this everywhere. Second is the lack of informal networks within the workplace into which they could be incorporated. So, you know, they might or might not be invited along to the happy hour or to this trip or that trip. And in the corporate setting, that's actually where the decisions are made. So I wonder what you're seeing is that in this one regard, professional attainment, it will take longer than one generation. If, the, if we assume there is such a upward trajectory for everybody, that America lifts everybody up, which isn't, hasn't been all true for all groups in any case. I think it will take a bit longer for them to translate fully their credentials into the labor market. Mm -hmm. But I also think that corporate America or American society, broadly speaking, have to change. We have to change our conception mm -hmm. of what it means to be a leader, what qualities make for good leadership. And this actually is the same debate that has been going on for women, right? right. In fact, <clears throat> many people and many studies actually show that women are better leaders than men, but the perception continues right. to be that they would not be as effective as men. And we saw that uh, at the highest office, whereby we have yet to elect any women to be president of this country. And we see it in all sorts of fields, in professional fields, on the corporate boards, uh, CEOs, presidents of universities, that there are still a predominance of white men. It's, it's interesting that there's a perceptual um, problem. It's interesting. Um, I want to thank you. This is um, it's giving me so much to think about, but I really appreciate that you're relying on these data sets to do a kind uh, careful analysis. And you were able to break down that these perceptual um, traps people fall into, that they homogenize whole groups or they think this is true for one group, this is not true for another group, that you kind of break that, uh, break that down. Do, how do you think your students feel about these um, scandals around universities right now? I think it's actually, it could affect some of them because if you feel that you read about it and you, you, this wasn't your parents, this wasn't you, but you're thinking this whole system is not quite fair right now. It's an open secret and now they're welcome to it. Um, we know for a long, long time that American society is not fair. Our admission process is not fair because from the birth gate, we already know our life chances are determined by the family into which we are born. For example, children of parents with two college education are three times more likely than children of parents without high school education to achieve a BA degree. So by the birth gate, you are already one-third less likely to achieve, wow. and that is not counting race and gender and everything wow. else. So my students are, in some sense, reacting to it the way that they should, which is, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that there's so much power and money and influence involved behind the scene, that admission into an elite institution is never or has never been about purely about merit. Mm. It is always about other considerations. But having said that, I do want to emphasize that we should not take this scandal, which is huge um, in terms of implications across multiple institutions, to be representative of every admission process across the country. 
we should remind ourselves that this is a small number compared to the proportion of students and applicants who apply every year. But this small number reveals the imperfections within our system and hopefully invite a conversation among our students, right, about what a fair and just and equitable society would look like. If that's the conversation that would ensue as a result of the lawsuit against Harvard, um, as a result of this scandal, then I'm happy because I think that if there's a lesson that we can extract from every negative experiences that happens to us, then there is a chance that as people, as a community, and as a country, we shall move forward in a more positive direction. Mm -hmm. And that has always been my hope. So in my classroom, when I bring up this topic, I invite my students to react, but more importantly, ask them, how would you do this differently? How can we change the system that we perceive to be unfair towards some groups by class, by race, or by gender? Professor Tran, thank you so much. You're leaving me with some optimism and hope, and actually, I want to um, applaud you and thank you for making the effort to also speak to the public, which is how I encountered your work first in op-ed pieces and sort of on social media. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you for the invitation to be part of this wonderful conversation. Thank you.